hearing the rebuke that had been given to the church at Sardis, the Philadelphians had to be a little bit nervous. After all, they knew they were next on Jesus' list. They knew the uh, path in which these letters had been taking. And when we think about the pastor in the Church of Philadelphia uh, opening up the scroll and reading the words to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, you can almost imagine that the, the congregation would have stiffened, like, oh, no. And we know what we, he said to them, what's he going to say to us? But as the words began to cross the pastor's lips, we can also sense that they began to relax. There may have even been a, a hallelujah or a, a glory to God given because they came to realize that as bad as it was in Sardis, it was the same level of good for the Philadelphians. Jesus had nothing positive to say about the church in Sardis, but he had nothing negative to say about the Christian gathering in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city, was about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. It was a gateway to what now today is modern-day Turkey. It was well known that it had a vast amount of vineyards. It had a thriving wine business. And it was no stranger to persecution. But even greater, it was no stranger to damage. The city itself had been destroyed three times through earthquake and had been rebuilt. So they understood the geography of where they were, that this was a, a troubling place to live. And in that, we find uh, Jesus speaking to John to write to this church, and now to this body of believers, he introduces himself in a different way. Because this same one who had introduced himself as the one who holds the seven stars the first and the last, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword, uh, the son of God, uh, the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now he introduces himself here as he who is holy. And so what we want to do is we are going to work our way through these verses this morning in preparation uh, of taking communion together. And we'll begin by uh, considering three things in verse 7. I've entitled this morning's message, Considering What the Faithful One Writes to the Faithful. He considered the church in Philadelphia, the Christians in that church, faithful. Three things that we see in verse 7, the holiness of Jesus, the truthfulness of Jesus, and the key that Jesus possesses. Let's begin with the holiness of Jesus. He says he uh, is holy. He who is holy. The word holy, many of you might know already in your 
personal study of the word of God, written in the Greek is the word agios. And its literal translation is awful. <laughs> in our Western literature, we look at the word awful as being bad, horrible, something not good. But if you cut the word in two, it is full of awe. So Jesus is saying, he who is full of awe. The word agios also means sacred. He who is sacred. Set apart, sacred. But it also means morally blameless. He who is morally blameless. And so in other words, Jesus is reminding the Christians in the church in Philadelphia that, that he uh, is the code for moral blamelessness. There is... Uh, a morality placed inside of every human being at birth. We instinctively are given the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. And yet as we grow in age and are impacted by our culture around us, we begin to question, you know, what is right, what is wrong. If not careful, we get swept into... Uh, somewhat of a relativism that says, well, what's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And there becomes no moral absolute when in fact Jesus says there is a moral code. It exists in every human being and I am it. And so he communicated to his followers as well that they were to be holy. They were to be full of awe. People should see the awful Christ, the full of awe Christ in his followers. People should see the sacred Christ in his followers. And people should experience a moral blamelessness in his followers. Remember what his apostle Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 1.15, but he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We are to have a lifelong pursuit of holy living. And that often quiets us in the church, doesn't it? <laughs> quiets me. But to know that it is a lifelong pursuit, it's not just a one day, a one week, a one, it's a lifelong. Are you, am I, endeavoring to live wholly before the Lord in all your conduct? We also see the truthfulness of Jesus. He said that he is he who is true. Truthfulness is simply honesty in action with compassion. Jesus is true because he was always honest about people and about their circumstances, but he remained honest with compassion as he gave his delivery about their truth and the truth in them. You remember uh, him dealing with Martha, 
Mary's sister, when Jesus had been invited to their home. And, you know, Mary came in and just fell at his feet and began to worship him at his feet. And Martha is busy. Wait a minute, we've invited this guest. We're, we're you know, doing all that we need to do. Jesus, won't you talk to her and tell her, hey, there's a lot of work we got to do here. What are you doing just at his feet? And he says, whoa, time out, paraphrase. Martha, you are worried about many things. It was true, but it was compassionate. The same way he treated Simon the Pharisee, remember? Luke 7, 44, <clears throat> Simon had invited Jesus to his home and he comes into the, the Pharisee's home and this prostitute comes in and pours oil on his feet, washes his feet with her tears, wipes her, his feet with her hair. And Simon, this Pharisee, who wanted to ascribe prophet qualities to Jesus. In other words, we know you are a man from God for no one can do the things you do unless he be from God. So he wanted to kind of trap him and, and call him a prophet. But here he is in his home and as a prophet, this prostitute is touching him, which was absolutely against the law of Moses. And so he can't figure Jesus out in his self-righteousness. And he says, do you know who's touching you? And Jesus uses the opportunity to teach this self-righteous religious person a lesson through a parable. He said to her, um, there was a creditor who two people owed him great sum of money. One a very large amount, the other not, not very much. And yet the creditor forgave both of them. And he said to Simon, which do you think loved more? Loved that creditor more? And Simon said, well, the one who had great debt. Jesus said, you have said rightly, he who is forgiven much loves much. Have you been forgiven much today? Do you love him much? Because the truth comes, but he delivers it compassionate. His word to Peter, we'll never deny you, Lord. Yes, you will. After the cock crows three times, you will deny. It was truthful, but it was compassionate. The adulterous woman who was ready to be stoned and Jesus riding in the sand you who is without sin be the first to throw. We see him as he who is true. And we are commanded in scripture to speak the truth, but we're to join it with compassion. Ephesians 4, 15 and, uh, 14 and 15, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but we should speak the truth. What does it say? In love. 
that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. Beloved, don't ever sacrifice compassion for truth. Don't ever sacrifice truth for compassion. Join them, combine them. And we see not only is he holy, not only is he who is true, but he is, is he who possesses uh, the key of David. He who possesses the key uh, of David. What is this key of David? There are many uh, thoughts out there about what the key of David is, but basically, simply what Jesus is saying is that he is the keeper of keys of doors. And he's actually quoting an Old Testament uh, passage, Isaiah 22, 20, verse 23. And what the Lord is uh, reinforcing here to these Christians in the church in Philadelphia is that he is the one who admits things into the life of his people, and he is the one who excludes things in the life of his people. He's the one that has the keys of admission and exclusion. You follow me. What that means to you and I as a Christian is that if we're seeking some some thing, some direction, some career, some relationship, some uh, thing in our life, we need to remember if we have in fact committed our lives to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, that he is the one that holds the key to the door to this whatever we are seeking. You remember an example was the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 16. He wanted to go up to Asia Minor and, and preach the gospel, a noble and biblical desire. But what happened? He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Then they went to Messiah and tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not for, uh, permit them. And then finally, uh, as they were uh, passing by Mycenae, on their way to Troas, Paul laid down, and you remember the account, he had a dream, and in that dream there was a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over here and help us. The Lord had closed the door, but opened another one. He talks about this door that Jesus, the the keeper of the keys, the one who admits things into our lives and excludes things from our lives, opens the door and closes the door. Paul talks about this in Colossians 4. He said, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant uh, in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains. He's the one. If you're seeking something, when you came through these doors and there's, you're, uh, there's, uh, there's a saint in our fellowship that has a great concept of this, and it's like when they want to know if the Lord is going to open a door, uh, they use this phrase, they, they knock softly. I like that. He's the one. And we need to recall that he's the one, but, you know, be careful what you 
ask for of the Lord. Be careful what you decide to ask him to admit into your life or exclude in your life. You remember what happened to the children of Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 8? They entered the promised land and, and they were there. And, you know, you get into 1 Samuel, we're on the heels of First and Second Kings and things weren't really going that well anyway. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet the children of Israel, synonymous to the child of God, although Israel is not the church and the church is not Israel. Get that straight today, I hope. Synonymous to the children of God were in the promised land and God wanted them to be a what? Remember? A theocracy. He wanted his children to be governed and guided by God. A theocracy. But they were not happy with that because then that meant they were responsible to listen to what God had to say and to then obey what it was God had to say. And that was a lot more work than they really were willing to do. So they looked around at the nations around them and you remember the account. They saw a king taking care of everything for the people. Oh, wow, that's a good idea. Then we're not responsible. The king will be responsible, and it'll all unfall on his shoulders. So they said to Samuel, give us a king. You remember it? We want a king. And Samuel was brokenhearted because he knew what that meant. He knew that they had just resolved to change a major direction in their lives. And so, as a brokenhearted prophet, he goes to the Lord. He goes, God, they want a king. And God says, Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So go to them and tell them what this king they want is going to do. You, they want him so bad, remember? Go tell them what he's going to do. Have you ever read it? Oh, my goodness. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 through about 18. Samuel goes and he gathers them and he says, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. Watch how many times you hear the word take and not give. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. He will take your daughters and, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields for, for your vineyards and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and he put them to work for him. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king that you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you that day. Woohoo! Careful what you ask for. Choose wisely. Well, I can tell we're going to run out of time quickly this morning, but let's consider a couple of things that are over in uh, Verse 8, two things that 
deal with the Christians in the church in Philadelphia. First of all, we see that uh, he had given them an open door. And secondly, we see that they had a, a strength. There was a strength that they possessed. He said, I set before you an open door. Now, when we read in the New Testament particularly, an open door most often refers to an opportunity to evangelize, big word, an opportunity to share your faith with someone. And so uh, when that door is open, we are to, and they were to, walk through it. Now, remember historically what was happening in the church in Philadelphia. Uh, they had a great evangelistic calling primarily because of where they were. The city itself had a mission prior to the Christians coming to the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was responsible for spreading the Greek culture. And as a gateway into Turkey, all who came through there, the Philadelphians were privileged to further and uh, spread Greek culture among all its citizens. Now what Jesus is saying is, I've set before you a, a different door. Here's a door to spread the kingdom of God amongst those in that city. And the truth of the matter is, as it relates to uh, an open door for you and I, sometimes we just don't see it. Sometimes we do. Can you relate? Sometimes we, we see a big open door. Uh, thank you for praying for Sherry and I while we were gone last week. You know, we went to Florida. The weather was really great. God answered prayer about weather. We went, uh, we enjoyed Disney World. Some of you may have objection to that. Uh, wherever you are on that, we enjoyed Disney World very much. And, you know, we don't agree with the whole Disney philosophy necessarily, but we enjoy the parks. And in one of our trips, uh, one of the parks, we were having a dinner uh, with one of those uh, Japanese things. They cook it in front of you, kind of like a Benihana thing. And it was lovely. I mean, it was quite above what we usually do. We were treating ourselves 34 years of marriage anniversary. And so these guys are cooking. And there was this... Uh, dad and daughter next to us. And next thing you know, we got to talking and they started sharing a lot about their lives and who they were. And we didn't, couldn't quite get it. And at the end of that conversation and dinner was over, they had shared that um, the dad wasn't doing well. He just lost him, right? Just lost his father. The girl next to the man was his daughter. And she was trying to help her dad navigate this very difficult time in his life. And all we were doing was listening and encouraging. And lo and behold, out of her mouth, she says, uh, she whispers over to her dad for a minute. Sherry and I look at each other. She whispers and she comes back. And out of her mouth, she says, well, we just believe God has placed you two here to encourage us and help us in this difficult time. <laughs> Big door, right? Big door. All we did is, you know, we didn't read them the Romans Road. 
I just said, can we pray for you right here and right now? Sometimes we see it. Sometimes God has to hit us over the head with a hammer for it. Sometimes we don't see it. Charles Spurgeon spoke of this very thing. Uh, a young man was visiting with him once, and, and Charles, Mr. Spurgeon, you know, great preacher, he, he says to the guy, he says, who are you? What do you do? And the man says, well, well I, I, I'm a, a train engineer. I drive the train. And Spurgeon says to him, well, does the one shoveling the, croak, the coal, is he a Christian? And the man says, I don't know. And he says, well, go find out and go after him, you know. It's like, find out who is in your sphere and look for God to open a door. They had a strength. Jesus tells them by way of John, by way of the letter, that they have a little strength. But notice what that little strength enabled them to do. It enabled them to keep his word and to not deny his name. A little strength. Sometimes we think, you know, the the faithful giants in our life, they must just have so much spiritual strength. But look at this church that Jesus says is faithful. They had just a little strength. And yet that little strength was enough for them to be doned as faithful, to keep his word and to not deny his name. What does it mean to keep his word? Well, definition, to hold on to, to guard, and to keep an eye on. Are you, as a Christian this morning, and if you're watching at home, we want to include you, are you holding on, guarding, oh, sorry about that, and keeping an eye on his word? That, that's enough. If you're out in the world and someone you know, asks you, are you religious? Or no, I'm a follower of Jesus. Just don't deny his name. You want to break the silence in a conversation? Use Jesus' name. Don't use Christianity. Don't use church. Those things mean different things. Jesus, who is he? In verses 9 and 10, we find some interesting things. There are three things in verse 9 and 10 that those that were opposing the Christians in Philadelphia were actually spiritual liars. One commentator says that apparently the Christians in Philadelphia were persecuted by Jewish people. However, these persecuting Jews were Jews in name only. In fact, they had no spiritual connection to Abraham or to the people of faith. And Jesus cites that from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but they lie. And we see, secondly, that those same persecutors will, according to the word of the Lord, will discover that uh, they were wrong and that Christians were right. He says, I will make them come and worship at your feet. Now, before we run off into the sunset with, hey, I'm going to have non-believers worshiping at my feet. Time out. That's not what it says. Uh, 
if you reference 1 Corinthians 14, we see that the, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to this very thing that in 1 Corinthians 14, he says that if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. What the Lord is saying to these Christians in Philadelphia and what the Spirit of God would say to us is that those who are persecuting and against your faith right now and are obstinate about being uh, anti-God, atheistic toward God, don't want to receive you at all, that if they stay in that place, they will one day fall on their face and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God also highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those of the earth and those under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And lastly in 9 and 10, we see the joy of knowing that we're not going to be here for the hour of trial. He says to them in verse 10, uh, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth. Why? To test those who dwell on the earth. In other words, that hour of trial, most of us uh, and many theologians, commentators believe that is a reference to the great tribulation period in which that last three and a half years is a time of tribulation that has never been seen before on the earth, that during that period of time, yes, there will be some that are saved, but there will be some that continue to deny. And he says, you, and he says, to you and me, I will keep you from that. You will not be here for that. You will have been caught up together, rapturas, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with him. Moving on and, and working through this, we see an admonition in verse 11. He says, behold, I come quickly. What does that mean? We've been waiting 2,000 years, right? Well, the word quickly actually means without delay and suddenly. In other words, when he comes, he will come quickly. When he comes, he will come suddenly. So he's telling them, as the Lord is saying to you and I this morning, that we're to hold fast what you have. What do we have? We are given a crown. And Jesus himself is going to give us that crown for those of us who build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 9.25, if you're taking note, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. 2 Timothy 4.8, 
Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you and me. Can't you just wait, Lord? Oh, can you imagine Jesus giving you, handing you a crown? James, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for he has been improved, and he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5, 3 and 4, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We sang it this morning. Casting down our golden crowns. Hallelujah, right? And we consider finally and close to the end in verse 12 three things about the crown. The crown includes being a pillar in the temple of God, stationary pillar in the temple of God, It includes having the name of God written on us. I don't fully understand that, but I'm like, bring it on, Lord. The name of my God inscribed on you, inscribed on me, not only the name of God in his city, but we will also have a new name of Jesus inscribed on us. Do some homework. Read a couple of commentaries, figure out what that is or, or embrace what that might be. But man, in that day to, to be a stationary pillar in the temple of God, to have God's name in his city written in the name of Jesus on us. So we close this morning with one last exhortation. It comes to us in verse 13. And it has to do simply with this. Using these two things for what they were made for. What are our ears placed it on the side of our head made for? They are so that we can hear. And as it relates specifically, as Jesus is writing to the Christians in the city of Philadelphia and the Spirit of God is speaking to the Christians in this room and in the sound of my voice and those of you at home and myself as well, I am to use these ears for what they're made for. What were they made for? To hear the Spirit of God speaking. And what is he saying as we've gone through it? that we are to remain in a lifelong pursuit of holiness, moral blamelessness. We'll miss the mark, but confess it and let Jesus forgive it. But pursue again. That we are to speak the truth with compassion. Don't forsake truth because you want to be soft and compassionate. Don't forsake compassion because you know you need to speak directly about the truth. That we are to trust the key holder for the doors that he'll open and the doors he'll shut. Don't get manipulative, pushing down, striving forward. Let Jesus just simply 
open and close the doors. And when he opens one, as it relates to sharing your faith, walk through it. Not knowing exactly what he's doing, but just trusting he's opened the door. Reminding ourselves that, well, I'm not real strong in my faith, Lord. I just have a little. Remember what you said? A little is enough. Just hold on. Keep your eye on. Guard my word. And when someone asks you about Jesus, don't deny me. There will be those that persecute you, but, you know, one day the Lord will vindicate that. It's not our responsibility. One day the Lord will vindicate because a crown awaits us. A crown that he will personally give. I want it. I know you want it. Let's trust him for it. As we come this morning, we come to remind ourselves of these things. That it's not what we do, but what he has already done. That ushers us into these great things that are promises and exhortations and true for our life. I pray it speaks to you. It speaks to me greatly as going through it, getting ready for today. Just, wow, Lord, I can't do all that. He says, you don't, I do it in you. And today we start afresh. Today we begin again as we take the cup and the bread. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today and as we prepare, Lord, to receive these elements that remind us of your body and your blood. And we think upon this precious letter to Christians 2,000 years ago and yet so relevant and necessary for us right now. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us through it as we prepare our hearts, Lord, to remember what you've done so that these things are so. We rejoice. We humble ourselves. And we commit ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.